and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabites wives, the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I eight sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say... I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Worfa kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, written after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and they will be I buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was still because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of God. Good evening, everybody. So we we are going to we're in a new series. We're in the book of Ruth, and let me just tell you uh, right up front, it is my favorite book in the Old Testament. So I am super excited to spend the next four weeks with you. And here's my goal for the whole Ruth series, is not that you come away going, that was a terrible sermon, not that you go, come away going, that was a great sermon, but that you remember Ruth, the book, and it changes your life. And years from now, I hope that you will still have the book of Ruth in your back pocket, and it will still be, be being applied to you even then. That's my goal, okay? So if I don't achieve that after four weeks, you pull me aside after the service and go, hey, listen, it was terrible. And then tell me why, and I will graciously take the rebuke, okay? But here's a couple of reasons why I love this book so much. Is number one, the book has incredible characters, okay? So we're doing the book of Ruth over Woman's Month for a reason, because Ruth, what a woman, okay? She is just amazing, okay? If my daughters, now I have two daughters, there's one that's one years old and the other that's three. If they have had to come to me and they ask me about a woman who they should look up to, I'd obviously say their, their mom. Okay, I'm not, <laughs> not going to get in trouble. <laughs> if you're married, you know you get in trouble for answering that question wrong. For those who are getting married, just take notes. <laughs> that's how you answer that question. But then I'd also say to my two daughters, I'd say, check out the book of Ruth. Because when you read about Ruth... She's courageous, she's kind, 
She's servant-hearted, she's loving, etc. The list goes on. And Ruth is, it's an incredible uh, book to look at for Women's Month because Ruth actually embodies the perfect woman. And she is the perfect woman because she embodies the perfect picture of a man. What? I expected something to be thrown. <laughs> I, I did think if I make this comment, I might suddenly see some woman running along the side. Yeah, while I'm not watching, suddenly, bam, I get knocked over. You all are smiling. <laughs> it's probably that, like, I'm kind of afterwards, just you wait. He won't be heading home. No. She does embody the perfect picture of not just any man. She actually is the perfect picture of Jesus. And I think any woman would like to be the perfect, of Je- perfect picture of Jesus. And so what we're going to see as the story progresses is just how much of a perfect picture of Jesus she represents. And I find that quite helpful. I, I'm not a woman, so I can't say this. But I, I sometimes think as, as, a, as men, we get it a little bit easier in the sense that Jesus was a man. And so we have a great picture of a man to look up to. For a woman, here you have Ruth. So if you've ever kind of questioned how you can be a godly woman or how you can be a woman that is a, a good picture of Jesus, well, read the book of Ruth. It's incredibly helpful. But men, don't feel left out because there's another man in this book, and his name is, his name is Boaz, who is actually also, like Ruth, a picture of Jesus. He is a redeemer in the story. And this brings us to another reason of why doing Ruth in Women's Month is a good idea. Because men, if you want to know how to treat a woman, <laughs> look at Boaz. Boaz is a sacrificial, kind, other person-centered man. And we're going to see this as the story progresses. So that's the first reason, because they've got amazing characters. But the second reason is, uh, this is just an incredible story. It's just an enjoyable book to read. It's a story of a family who loses everything. That's not why it's enjoyable. But what's really great is you see how God rescues them. It's a love story. One where people sacrifice for one another. The jury's still out as to whether it's a romantic story. There's lots of debates about that with the theologians. But the one thing you can definitely see is the character's love for one another. It's a thrill ride because often you're on the edge of your seat questioning how the characters are going to get on with one another. And the final reason why the story is so great is it's because, and here's probably the number one reason to actually read the story, is because it's the story of redemption. Open your Bibles to the content section quickly. All of you. If you have it on your phone... There's a content section there. Except if you got it on your phone and, and you're ordering the books in alphabetical order, just switch it back to the biblical order. So if you look at the books before and after Ruth, maybe just look at the two books. I'm going to make this interactive. You'll notice something. Can anyone see what is common between the two books before Ruth and the two books after? What is common? David, you can't answer because you have a theological degree. Uh, so David can answer. It's a hard question. What is something that's in common? There's probably lots of things. One thing that is in common with the books before, the two books before and the two books after the book of Ruth. What are the two books before the book of Ruth? Okay, that's also one thing. I didn't pick up that, but that's good. You should get it. If I had chocolate, you would get it. I'm cheap. (laughs) Anybody else? Any other takers? Samuel was a prophet. Okay. I'm not sure entirely about that one. Well, he was. He was a prophet, but that's not what I'm looking for is what I'm trying to say. So... The two books before, and actually some of the books before that as well, and the books after it, are all about the history of Israel. Okay? So, that's the common thing. 
Before Ruth, you have Joshua and Judges, which are all about how God brought Israel into the promised land and how he led them from, uh, with the Judges and, and after Ruth. The story of Israel continues with God replacing the ruling system of Judges uh, with kings in, in 1 and 2 Samuel and in 1 and 2 Kings after that. So the question is, here's the question, is why is Ruth placed between these sets of books? Because the story of Ruth Barely, it does mention a little bit about God's people, but it mostly focuses on a story between two women and a man called Boaz. Surely it would have been wise for the books of Judges to just go straight into the book of Kings, right? You wouldn't miss a beat. Why have this break in the story of Israel's history to talk about this woman named Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth? It's because God's people needed reminding of how he redeems. Of how he rescues. See, verse 1 of this text gives us a bit of context. Okay, So if you're looking at, go back to Ruth again, leave the content section, it's not inspired. Ruth chapter 1, look at verse 1. Okay. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So this story happens during the time of the judges. And here's a helpful verse explaining what life during the time when the judges ruled. So I'm just going to read it. It's from Judges 21 verse 25. You don't have to go there. And it says this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And here's the key. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now imagine, just imagine for a little bit a world like that. Okay? Absolute chaos. We have a different way of saying that last sentence in our day. Everyone does what is right for them. You heard that? You've got to do what is right for you. Have you seen those like documentaries? The problem with this kind of thinking is that it kind of leads to a world that is kind of like what you see in Western movies. A cowboy town where they're sitting in the saloon. And one guy looks at another guy in a funny way, and next thing, they're having a shootout and somebody dies, right? It may look awesome in the movies, but imagine if you lived in that, right? I mean, imagine if you just, it's a town with no laws. Anything goes. There's nothing stopping someone from killing you. You look at some guy's girl funny, and the next thing, you're dead, it's, it's quite scary, right? I don't know why we enjoy those movies. That's actually quite freaky. And this world that we live in is actually starting to look a little bit like that, doesn't it? You can be anyone you want to be now. If you're a girl, you can be a boy and vice versa. Please don't laugh at this because it's going to sound funny, but it's actually not. There are people who even claim to be wolves. You might be offended about, by this, perhaps you hear, and you might be offended by what I just said, but hear me out. If you're allowed to do what is right for yourself in your own eyes, then what's to stop you from, or what's to stop anybody, if they're doing what's right in their own eyes, what's to stop them from being a pedophile or a rapist? If what's right for them is right for them, then how can we tell them to stop? A world where there is freedom in this sense is the absence of restriction, which actually results in a terrifying world. And, and so this is the world that the book of Ruth is set in. It's a world where everybody, it's chaos. It's not a great world. But instead of turning to God, so that's what you see in Judges. Judges is the world of chaos. And then what happens in 1 Samuel, instead of people looking to God, what do they look to? A king like the rest of the nations. So in the book of 1 Samuel, you have God telling the people not to ask for a king like the surrounding nations, but they don't listen and they demand a king. What happens? Israel's history is filled with kings that never fully get them out of the challenging world that they are in. So Ruth is put between those books to remind us of how God really saves. 
And so if you go home tonight, and I encourage you at some point this week to read the book of Ruth, but that's the key. That's the key to the book. And when you get that, then you get the whole book of Ruth. And that should bring you so much joy when you read it. At the end of the Ruth, when, uh, when the main characters, Ruth and Naomi, are rescued, uh, God is praised. And the book says this. It says this in verse 14 of chapter 4. You can go there if you want. That's totally up to you. But it says this. It says, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. This is the author's way of saying who the true hero of the story is. It's ultimately not Ruth. Or Boaz. It's the God who uses Ruth and Boaz to save. And this is something to say to us now because we live in a world which resembles this. We live in a world where crime is rampant, where rape is rampant. Johannesburg is the murder capital of the world. There's corruptions, babies being murdered in the womb. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And what we then do is often... We put our trust in multiple different places, don't we? Something that I've been seeing lately with a lot of people is we put our trust in the government. Nothing against the government, because even the most perfect government in the whole world, even if they sorted out every problem there and then, guess what? More problems arise, right? You want to deal with all the issues in the world? You want to stamp out evil? You've got to stamp out sin. And I find myself falling into this trap all the time. If the government would just do this, if the government would just do that, if the government would stop doing this, if the government would stop doing that. And you see South Africans, we're great at this. Here's what we do. We look at the government. The government seems to be not solving everything. So what do we do? We get on a plane. We fly to another country thinking the grass is greener on the other side. And what do we find? There's still the same issues. Or they're not the same. They're just different but equally as strong. I know people who have traveled to the UK who are struggling with issues with their children, wishing they could come back here because <laughs> we don't have some of the issues they face. The point is we're trusting in the wrong thing. What do we need to be trusting in? God has sent a redeemer, Jesus. God's the one who redeems. Amen? Yes, thank you. So I'm sorry for that long introduction. We're now actually going to jump into Ruth chapter 1. Hallelujah, we're finally going to get there. <laughs> yeah, you know the preacher's been long when someone shouts hallelujah to him actually getting to a point. All right, so we're going to get into Ruth chapter 1, and it says this in verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahalan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, believe it or not, this short bit of text gives you actually a great picture into the life that Naomi, who is the main character of this chapter, had prior to the loss of her family. So in verse 1, it tells us that this story took place during the time of the judges, which we've looked at. But it says something else that's helpful. It says that there was a famine in the land. Now, we saw how we kind of related to what was life was like in the time of the judges. And we can also kind of relate to a life with famine. I can just give you two words to help you relate. Food shedding. Okay. That was a joke. I was supposed to laugh. I was trying to be funny. It didn't work. <laughs> but you know what it's like to have something that you really need and you don't have it. Okay? That's the reference. Good. We there? Got you guys. Great. I'm glad you're with me. So, and like many South Africans, when you struggle with things like food shedding and with issues all around you, you decide maybe it's time for us to move to a better place. So, like many South Africans, Naomi and her husband up and leave Judah, and they head to a town called Moab. And apparently that's where the greener pastures were for them. And life was really good for them. There's two bits of evidence. One, the text says that they start off by sojourning, as verse 1 says, in Moab, which literally means to stay for a short time. 
But eventually what happens is they lay down roots. And you can see that at the, as verse 2 tells us. Which means they must have felt it was a good place to settle. The other piece of evidence is in their names. In Old Testament literature, so that when you're reading your Bible as well, you can do this. You can look up on Google what the names of people mean. Because often they tell you something about their situation. So, Elimelech means God is king. And Naomi means sweet. So the situation is that everything is going well. Life is sweet. God is king. Life is actually going pretty well. All is well in the world. But then what happens is verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now, as the reader, you kind of hope that this is where the tragedy ends. And it does seem to pick up a little bit in verse 4, but not for long. These, her two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. And forgive me if I say Oprah. I just... It's always what I see when I see that. It's, it's like a two-letter difference. It's like Oprah. Um, no, the one was Orpah. And the name of the other was Ruth. So yay. Shows that things have picked up. The boys have moved on. They've, they've found two lovely women to marry. Carry on reading. They lived there about ten years. And both Mahalan and Killian died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's hectic, isn't it? This is the kind of tragedy that you hope never happens to anybody. Naomi lost her whole family, her husband and her kids. I mean, just picture this for a moment. Imagine, imagine someone calling you up and saying, I've lost everybody. It's tragic, and there are sadly some people in this church, you might even be here today, and that's you. But the story gets worse. Because Naomi doesn't just lose her family, she loses everything else as well. See, society back then was a male-dominated society. Men owned the property and all the possessions. So if your husband died, you lost everything. You'd have to organize for a relative of your husband to marry you so that you could keep the house and all the material possessions. So she not only lost her family, but she's on the brink of poverty. Can you see how it gets worse? And she also would have lost her biggest support structure as well. So the culture back then was very similar to perhaps many cultures here. Many black and Indian cultures have this. You see, unlike my white culture, where we rely on ourselves for everything, back then your family was your protection. Your family was who you turned to when you were sick. Your family supported you in everything. And when you got married back then as, as a woman, you left your old family and you committed to the new family. So often the families you moved into consisted of multiple generations with grannies and grandpas, your husband's brothers, and then all the children were all under one roof. So a family back then was, a re was really a community that you depended on. But now, Naomi has lost everything. Her structure, she wasn't living with her extended family, etc. But she lost her structure all her material possessions. And on top of this, she has two other women in the house, Ruth and Orpah, who she has to provide for. The story doesn't indicate that she has any other family to go to, so she really is alone. She's at rock bottom in her life. And we know this because look what it says later in the story. This is where you see Naomi's heart. Verse 20. She, Naomi, said to them, do not call me Naomi, which, as we said earlier, means sweet or pleasant, but call me Mara, 
which means bitter. Hear these words. Let them sink into your heart as you read them. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? <laughs> I think most of us can identify with Naomi. We all know what it's like to be in the situation, don't we? When your suffering is so bad that here's how you feel. Empty, bitter. And later on, we're going to talk about feeling like God has, has brought this all upon you. Death of a loved one may, may not be the only thing that causes this. You could, you could suffer in other ways and get to the same place, feeling like you are the shell of the person that you once were. Now, if you're not going through this now, you might see a friend they're not the same person you saw a few weeks back. They've been emptied of something. Like Naomi, they were once sweet, but they've now become bitter. In other words, they were once in a good place, but now they're in the darkness and they're struggling to get out. They don't laugh as much as they used to, or talk as much anymore, or something is just different from the bright person that they once were before. And this is because of their situation. It's been so tough that they can't bear to stand under the weight of it. So they can only let it crush them. And this crushes their spirit as well. And you know this because you know something. They've got nothing left to give. They are empty. And that might be you here today. You're suffering so much that it's left you bitter and empty inside. I think you need to carry on the story with me because you will see there is hope. So Naomi is not in a good state. So let's carry on reading from verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So Naomi hears that the Lord has visited his people, and she uses the word Yahweh when she says the Lord. Now, there are different names for God in the Old Testament, but she specifically used the name Yahweh, which has many meanings, but she uses it here to mean the all-powerful God. So clearly there's a glimmer of hope within the story. Naomi feels that if she just heads back to, jo to, to, to Judah, remember she's in Moab right now, if she heads back to Judah, maybe there's a chance for her to get her life back. So let's keep reading. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your husband's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, as I'm reading, I want you to pick up how many times she talks about her husband. Okay? She's just said it once there. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your, your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to, ha too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So what happens here is that Naomi and her daughters-in-law get up to go back to Judah, and as they're walking along, Naomi suddenly realizes that it would be best for the two younger daughters, the two women, to go back to, to Moab. And she's doing this out of kindness. And the reason this is kind is because if you look at the text, you see Naomi's heart. 
She wants these women to have a life of rest, which you see in verse 9. And she believes that rest comes from having a husband. The word husband is repeated multiple times within this short passage. So clearly, having a husband is important to Naomi. And she worries that these women will not find husbands in Judah. There's various reasons for this. For example, Ruth and Orpah are Moabites. And due to wars that happened continually between the Moabites and the Jews, Jewish men didn't like Moabite women. But also, these women were widows without children. And it was seen as disrespectful to marry a Jewish widow without children because it was expected that a widow without children should marry a relative of their deceased husbands. So Ruth and Orpah would have been seen as a little bit out of bounds. Okay, you don't go there. We don't touch them. And finally, Naomi actually says she's too old to have sons. And even if she could have sons, it would have been ludicrous to think that these two women are going to wait until these little boys are grown up enough to marry. Of course that's crazy. So Naomi's being kind here. She advises them to rather stay home. It's better for you. Now, we would have given similar advice, wouldn't we? Because in a society that is male-dominated, Ruth and Orpah need a husband for security. Rest and a chance at a somewhat decent life. But here's the problem with the advice. Naomi's answer to a successful life is a man. The anchor of the pillar to a decent life, a good life, is to have a good man. In other words, if Naomi was giving a lecture on how to build a good life today, here's what she would say. She might use a house as an illustration, and she'd say the foundation of the house should be a man. Some of you are laughing and smiling because this is how your parents talk to you. If you're a woman, you've got to get married, find the right man. Hopefully not in all your houses. <laughs> but there are places where this kind of talk happens. Now we understand what makes Naomi suffering all the more worse. Because we understand that losing her husband wasn't just losing a person. She had lost a pillar of strength. The pillar of strength. Her entire foundation of her life had been ripped from underneath her. Her suffering was made all the more worse because she placed her husband in a place that he was never meant to be, the foundation of her life. Friends, let me tell you, only God should be the foundation of your life. And we put so many things as the foundation of our lives. We put money there. We put a good career there, and we tell ourselves that here's the key. The key to a good life is marry the right person or have the right job. When we do that, it's like, it's like we can say, okay, I've built the rest. I've, I can build the rest of my house now because I've got the right foundation. Good education, good job, good career path. I just need the right kind of things, and that's the foundation. The problem with this is that it's, these things are fickle. And we know it, but we still put it as the foundation, right? People die. Money is never constant. Sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. Careers and life happens. And so you lose that foundation, and guess how it leaves you feeling? Empty. Bitter. Perhaps even angry at God. When you lose those things, what do you do? You look at God and you say, the Lord has brought calamity upon me. Your life becomes blue because you've pinned your hopes and dreams on that foundation. That was what you were going to build the rest of your life upon. And if you don't think that's you, think of how you finish university, right? You will only have that moment in life where you can sit back on the couch and rest and go, okay, now everything's sorted, when you have the best job. Not the best job, you have a job. 
not saying you don't have to have a job. You do need financial security and all of those things. But if those things become the foundation of your life, you're stuffed. And if you've made a person the pillar of your life or that foundation, please hear this in love. There is hope for healing. When you start on the journey of coming to Jesus and letting him be your foundation, you will find that you will still love the person you lost and you will treasure them, but they won't be your foundation. And this may actually be the thing that helps you to pick yourself up and move on. If you've lost your job, or there could be 10 million reasons why you're feeling empty, but here's what happens when you come to Jesus. His foundation that you build a house filled with hope, filled with purpose and joy that never leaves. You might not know how Jesus can fulfill your life, but you do know that you are empty. Something is missing. And you don't have the right foundation. Your house is not characterized with joy, purpose, and hope. I'm not talking about laughter all the time and smiles all the time. I'm talking about a life. Here's, Here's the Christian life. A Christian looks back over their life when they've been Christian for 10 years. And they see the ups and downs. But overall, they see joy. If that is you, you need to speak to me after the service. Okay? Or speak to David. So let's carry on from verse 14. So let's quickly recap. Naomi and her in-laws are walking home. And we've got to the point where we realized that not only has Naomi lost everything, her family, finance, house, etc., but she's lost the foundation of her life. And this makes her bitter. So verse 14, let's carry on reading. Then they, the daughters-in-law, lifted up their voices and wept again. Norpa kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth said, now oh, you guys got to hear this. This is arguably one of the most beautiful things in Scripture. Arguably. <laughs> Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more, if anything, but death parts me from you. What an incredible passage, right? Naomi's hit rock bottom. And so Ruth decides to help her by loving her in the most extraordinary way. Imagine, just just picture this for a moment in your heads. Imagine if someone said this to you. Imagine if someone was so other person-centered that they said these words to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. They were so dedicated to loving you that they actually make an oath saying that if I don't love you like this, then may the Lord deal with me. If, as verse 17 says, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, I'm sure you've heard these words before. These are often words quoted at weddings so that people getting married take notes. This could be you. You could use this. Or we've heard a summary of this. From a certain movie, <laughs> I'm not going to make that joke, actually I am, where two people could not share the door that they were on the middle of the ocean in. It's from Titanic. You jump and I jump. That's the most irritating part of that movie. The whole time, Jack is hanging on the edge there, and I keep looking going, but there's space for two of you. Could you not just both share? Anyway, I'm going to carry it away. So in Titanic, Jack says this. He says this line. I'm going to, sorry, it's a bit cheesy. You jump, I jump. Do you remember that line? You jump, I jump. I promise you, in that part of the movie, whenever they said that at the end, when he's like dying there, hanging on the edge, and, and, and she goes, remember, you jump, I jump. Even the guys were crying in the cinema. We were all bawling. You don't, don't lie to me, guys. I know you were. James, I know you were. You're crying your eyes out. 
Because it because we actually when we hear that, we realize it's not the cheesy lines you see in movies. Most movies are just oh, I love you and it's like this emotional thing, but you don't actually see all the evidence of the love. You just hear the oh I love you. No. In Titanic, what was really clever about that was there was actions to those words. What, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Where you jump, I jump. Love is a total commitment of yourself to someone else. So Ruth gives herself fully to Naomi. Where you go, that's where you'll find me. Where you lodge, that's where I'll be. And where you die, that's where I'll be. Husbands and wives, you need to take note of this. Now, I know you're going to say, you're going to say this to me. Gareth, I'll take a bullet for my spouse. <laughs> Believe it or not, Deneo, most guys will say that. Yes, I know you'll give your life for your spouse, but will you actually give your life? In other words, I know you'll die for them, but would you give up your hopes and dreams, aspirations? In other words, the things that make up your life. Yeah, you'll give up your life, but will you give up your life? I know a couple who got married, and the wife wanted to have kids. The husband didn't. Eventually, after discussing it a couple of times, the husband came around and agreed to have one child. When they had the child... The husband felt that his freedom had been taken away. His rest, which was so dear to him, was removed because he was up half the night. He could no longer do some of the things that he loved, like drinking on the weekends after a hard week, because he had to be sober so that he could help at night. His Saturday morning golf was postponed because his wife was struggling with the kid, and so he had to stay at home. He felt trapped. He felt he was no longer himself. So he left his wife and his kid for freedom and his own identity. Now, many people in our culture would say that he was right. You know, he didn't want to have a child in the beginning. And if when he did have a child, he was losing himself, well, then he should just run for the hills. You need to be you you deserve to be happy. Do what is right in your own eyes. When I heard this story, I could not help but be angry. Because although he's happy, he's left a mother to raise a kid by herself and a kid who grows up without a dad. A kid who didn't get the choice in the whole situation. The story of people leaving their spouses because the spouse got in the way of their hopes and dreams or impacted their identity or they just weren't feeling love anymore is so common. What if? What if we lived in a society where people sacrificed for others? What if we lived in a people, a society where people loved like Ruth, gave up the luxuries of a good life in Moab to love a hopeless old woman? We'd have a world where everybody loved like Jesus. The Bible says the Lord, the Bible says love, this is from the New Testament, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, Jesus exemplified that and went further. He loved his neighbor more than himself. Yes, the cross was a place where he was ultimately glorified, but he had to give himself up in order to love us. He sacrificed his body for us. He loved us more than his own life. So let's hit the final part of the story. It won't be much longer. Naomi finally enters the town. When the women of the town greet her, she says what we looked at earlier, which is, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Now, when you get to this part of the story, you totally get Naomi's words here, right? She blames God for her struggles. 
She says in verse 20 that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And in verse 21, she says, the Lord has brought me back empty, and the Lord has testified against me and brought calamity upon me. She's lost everything. The anchor of her life has been removed. And you and I do this when we go in intense suffering. We shout at God and we blame him. But something that you've got to do when you read chapter 1 of Ruth is you need to ask, why did the author place the speech that Ruth gives in the middle? where Ruth declares her total service to Naomi. The author could have just said this, verse 14. Then they, which is Orpah and Ruth, lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then you can go straight to verse 19, where Naomi enters Judah. But the author chooses to leave the speech in between Ruth and Naomi. Why does he do that? Well, the answer is to show us that although God allowed Naomi to go through suffering, he never left her. Though she might be empty, God never left her completely empty. He was looking after her, for he gave her Ruth to look after her. See, Naomi, when she told the woman to call her Mara, had forgotten or just didn't think that Ruth was actually there. And when we're suffering, this is what happens to us. We tend to become blind to what God is doing. We can tend to not see the good things in our lives. We can shout at God like Naomi saying, God, you made me this way. You made me bitter. I'm empty and you are the one who is testifying against me. And we don't see the Ruth that has been put in our lives. For example, you might be going through intense suffering Right now, and you don't see the friend that's been by your side the entire time. You shout at God saying, nothing is good in my life, but you don't remember that friend. You don't see the spouse that has been praying for you the entire time. You don't remember all the good he's done in the past. How he's looked after you multiple times, time and time again, when he walked with you through that suffering, through the surgery that you went through. You don't remember that. You shout at God and you don't see the roof that is over your head or the breath in your lungs or the fact that you still go home to a bed. See, the reason we don't see these things is because of our suffering. We become so consumed with ourselves. And we say, woe is me, Lord. Why do this to me? How can I ever solve this? What am I supposed to do? I'm too ill-equipped to deal with this, etc., etc. And we don't look outside ourselves to see what God has given us. We become blind. And the one, the, the, you know what the biggest thing you and I become blind to? The biggest thing is God himself. You'll find when you read the New Testament that the same love... That Ruth showed for Naomi is the same love that Jesus shows you and I. For like Ruth left Moab to enter Judah, where people didn't like her because she was a Moabite, so Jesus entered a world that would eventually put him on a cross. He gave up heaven to come to us. He gave up Moab to enter Judah. Like Ruth gave up her people to join Naomi's people, so Jesus left heaven to become part of our people. Like Ruth committed to go wherever Naomi went to, so Jesus walks our road with us. He does it in two ways. He did it literally by coming to earth and experiencing the same experiences we do. And he still walks with us now through his Holy Spirit. Which means we can pray to him about any experience because he is there with us in the experience. And he knows our pain because he's experienced it. You, you think of any challenge that you've gone through, Jesus has likely experienced it. Even if you think you've been through abuse, Jesus, what, what happened to Jesus on the cross? If you've been alone, what happened to Jesus on the cross? If you've had no finances, Jesus was mostly poor. If you've struggled, he struggled. If you've been tempted, well, can you imagine how much temptation he went through and never gave up? 
But there's one difference that Ruth can't say which Jesus can. In verse 17, where you die, I will die. And where you are buried, there where I will be buried. And the reason Ruth can't say that she definitely knows she will die with him, but Jesus can because Jesus has died in our place. He has died where we should have died. And he has been buried with the burial that we should have been buried with. So to close off, there's a lot of us here today entering this church like Naomi's entering Judah. You may be lost people or going through trials that are leaving you empty and bitter and angry at the Lord. Do not forget that you have a Ruth who is walking with you into this room today. The text doesn't say this, but I imagine that when Naomi was getting angry at God, Ruth was standing there right with her thinking, but he gave you me. And I've given my life to you. I've said, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. There, I'll be there. And she even offered to be there till death. Jesus is doing the same thing. He is with you in your sufferings. When you are entering this church, he is saying, don't forget, I am here. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And where you die, I've already died. I've proved this because I've died on a cross. I will be with you until your death now. So to close off, I hope you remember whatever struggling you're going through, remember where Jesus is. If you're not a Christian here tonight, perhaps this is your chance to turn to Jesus. Perhaps, as I said earlier, you figured out the foundation of your life is not him. You need to turn to him. If you are a Christian, you perhaps need this reminding just as much. Because we all go through trials, don't we? You need to remember where Jesus is. And you need to remember what God is doing in your life. Let me pray for us. Father God, I know I've been long, and I do pray, Lord, that your spirit has been on everybody. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit has worked. Um, I know in your word you say that where two or three people are there, you are also. And so I pray, Lord, as you're with us tonight, that you grow us in this truth, that we never forget that you are with us. That even in our trials, we know that you have given us good things that we just don't see. Awaken our eyes to see your work in our lives, Lord. And I pray this in your name. Amen.